The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 11. 1 through 9, and it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Janet. Let's pray this morning. Father, we find it written... That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So help us to view your word that way this morning. Not merely as an interesting subject for study or even as a helpful resource for various situations, but as our very life. May we experience it as that through the ministry of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several weeks ago, I was playing a game of chess with my nine-year-old son, Caleb, and things didn't really go as I expected, we'll say. Uh, now, I'm not exceptional at chess by any means, but I have played it a lot, especially in the, in the past, and did pretty well, so I would say I'm a pretty decent chess player. But Caleb also has been playing a lot of chess and is even in some sort of an instructional chess club online. And so uh, the two of us decided to play against each other. And in this game, I wasn't necessarily trying my absolute best on every move the way I would against a more formidable opponent, I guess. But uh, I was still, you know, doing a 
what I thought was a good job. I wasn't thinking through everything necessarily, but I wasn't making any foolish moves either. However, around the middle of the game, Caleb started to pull ahead of me. And so I began to try a little harder. And yet somehow he managed to maintain his lead over me. So I began to try even harder. And then eventually, he ended up winning the game. So my nine-year-old son beat me (laughs) fair and square in a game of chess. And I have to say that that was a rather humbling experience for me. You know, of course, I could rationalize it and say that I wasn't trying my absolute best earlier in the game, but that doesn't change the fact that I still lost a game I was genuinely trying to win. And as I reflect on that humbling experience, I believe it's fair to say that it was my pride that led to my downfall, right? My prideful overconfidence, my prideful assumption that my abilities were up here and his were down here is what led me to not try uh, my absolute best earlier on in the game and perhaps to lose a game I might otherwise have won. And of course, that's not the only time my pride has led to my downfall. It has happened more than I care to admit. As Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we can see a similar pattern this morning in our main text also here in Genesis 11. Verses 1 through 4 tell us, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So the goal here was for these people to establish a city and build a tower that would serve as a monument to their own greatness. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Of course, the heavens are understood to be the dwelling place of God. So these people were trying to achieve basically what amounts to divine glory or a divine status for themselves. They even say very candidly, let us make a name for ourselves. It kind of reminds me of the Garden of Eden, where the serpent told Eve that by eating the forbidden fruit, that she could become like God. Similarly, in Genesis 11, I believe it was that same basic desire to be like God that was motivating these people to build this tower. And not only that, I believe that same basic desire to be like God is present in the human heart even to this day. Uh, For example, uh, one of my children, I won't tell you which one, has been known to have a bit of a bossy personality, 
So this child likes to be in charge and tell other kids what to do, and we frequently have to remind this child that they can't just boss other kids around. And so one afternoon, this child was alone in their room uh, during what was supposed to be nap time, and we overheard them talking. And as we listened to what was being said, it turned out that they were actually bossing around their stuffed animals. Like, those stuffed animals were like getting a strict lecture about the importance of doing something. I don't even remember what it was, but this child was really giving those stuffed animals a good talking to. And I just thought to myself, like, wow, that is one power-hungry kid. You know, we won't let them boss around other kids. They have to resort to bossing around their poor stuffed animals. And I believe that illustrates how the desire for, for power, and I guess we could even ultimately say, if you, if you get right down to it, the desire to be like God, in a sense, is present in the human heart to this day, from the most power-hungry corporate CEO all the way down to the little child bossing around their stuffed animals. And uh, we can uh, certainly see this ambition exhibited uh, in Genesis 11. So this Tower of Babel, as it's called later on in the passage, is very much a symbol of human pride, human ambition, human independence, and human autonomy as people pursue glory for themselves and seek to establish their own destiny without any regard for God. As the poet William Ernest Henley so memorably put it, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's a great description of the spirit of Genesis 11. In addition, keep in mind that what's happening in Genesis 11 is also directly contrary to what God told humanity to do. In Genesis 9:1, God told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But in Genesis 11, what do we see them doing? Well, instead of filling the earth and spreading out in different areas, they're clustering together in a single city. They even say at the end of verse 4 that they desire to establish this city, quote, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, end of quote. Presumably, they're thinking that by clustering together in this city that they're more secure So not only are they pridefully seeking glory for themselves, they're also pridefully seeking security for themselves apart from God. We then read how God responds to their prideful rebellion. Uh, First in verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And I love the subtle mockery in the way that's phrased. Remember, these people were striving to build a tower, uh, in their own words, a, a tower with its top in the heavens, right? And yet, what does God have to do? He has to actually come down from heaven to see this, inta- this tower that was supposedly so impressive. Now, obviously, God wasn't literally unable to see their tower from heaven, since in reality, he's all-seeing and all-knowing. The point, though, 
is that their tower is so unimpressive and so far from having its top in the heavens that figuratively speaking, God can't even see it from heaven. You know, I could just picture him like coming down slowly from heaven and being like, you know, now where is that tower? Like, I don't really see it around here. Um, where'd you say that was? And then in verses 6 through 9, God continues perhaps mocking them or at least speaking in an exaggerated manner of their accomplishments and, and their potential. He then confuses their speech so that they begin to speak in different languages for the first time and can't understand each other. And this results in them being dispersed over the face of the earth, as God had originally intended. So to distill all of this down to one central idea, God thwarts humanity's prideful attempt to exalt themselves in rebellion against their creator. That's the main idea of this passage, if you're taking notes. God thwarts humanity's prideful attempt to exalt themselves in rebellion against their creator. And as we've said, this prideful impulse to exalt ourselves and function independently from God is still present in the human heart to this day. You know, we might not be building a literal Tower of Babel today, but there are still plenty of ways in which humanity collectively seeks to exalt itself and function independently from God through various forms of human achievement. I just think of the massive progress in science and technology and medicine and other similar fields over the past hundred years or so. You know, this progress uh, is undoubtedly a gift of God. I mean, praise God for these things. Um, and at its best can be a form of worship to God since we're taking dominion over creation as God originally commanded humanity to do in Genesis 1. Yet unfortunately, that's not the motivation behind much of it, I fear. Instead, much of this progress is driven by a desire not to exalt God, but to exalt ourselves and build what amounts to a modern-day Tower of Babel that displays human achievement and fosters human autonomy. The idea is basically, look what we can do apart from God. Look at how great we are. And of course, we exhibit this prideful tendency to exalt ourselves not only collectively, but also individually. Within every human being, there's a desire to lift ourselves up and take for ourselves the glory that belongs to God alone and function independently from Him. In fact, in the unredeemed heart, at least, we might even say this desire is dominant and functions as the driving force behind all other sins, the, the sin beneath the sins, if you will. Yet even for those of us who are Christians, let's not imagine even for a moment that we no longer have this tendency toward prideful self-exaltation. It might not be quite as obvious or even dominant, but make no mistake, pride is still present within our hearts. Not only that, I believe we can safely say that pride is far more present than we 
are even aware of. So I'd like to give you a list of some manifestations of pride in our lives that often go undetected. My hope is that by identifying these manifestations, uh, it'll help us to repent of pride wherever we discover it and cultivate the humility that facilitates a closer relationship with God. And I'll just go ahead and say there are 10 items on this list, so we'll have to go through them rather quickly. Uh, 10 manifestations of pride that often go undetected. First is a preoccupation with finding fault in others. In doing this, we minimize our own faults and sins as if they were no big deal. And instead, focus on whatever's wrong with other people. Holding them to a much higher standard than the standard to which we hold ourselves. Now, maybe you've been doing that even as you've been listening to the sermon this morning. <laughs> Thinking about why so-and-so needs to hear this sermon instead of why you need to hear this sermon. By contrast, Christians who are humble understand that they have so much to focus on in their own hearts and lives that they don't therefore usually think all that much about the hearts and lives of others. Second, pride is manifested in being unteachable. Though we would never say it out loud, we sometimes assume that we know it all. Or at least that we're so superior to others that we can't possibly learn from them or benefit from what they have to say. Now, one subtle way this often shows up is when someone else is expressing their opinion or viewpoint about something, but instead of listening to them, what are we doing? We're already planning our own response in our minds. We also might find it difficult to admit when we're wrong about something, even when there's ample evidence that we are wrong. And that leads us into the third manifestation of pride, which is a refusal to ask forgiveness. You know, there are few things that require more humility than not only admitting we're wrong about something, but actually going beyond that and saying, will you Forgive me. Man, there is something so humbling about saying those words. And yet so often those who are blinded by pride can't see their need to do either of those things, either to admit that they're wrong or to ask forgiveness. Then a fourth manifestation of pride is functional independence from other Christians. To put it bluntly, not being involved in a church is incredibly arrogant because you're assuming that you don't need other Christians in order to live a healthy Christian life or to serve Jesus faithfully. You don't need their accountability. You don't need their spiritual gifts. You don't need their friendship or encouragement. Instead, you're entirely capable of doing just fine on your own. That, my friend, is pride. Humility involves recognizing our need for other Christians uh, within the God-ordained structure of the local church. 
And it also involves deliberately pursuing relationships with those Christians in a way that goes beyond Sunday morning. Um, Most often at our church through community groups or other similar things. And fifth, and closely related, pride is manifested in an unwillingness to submit to God-ordained authority. God has ordained certain authorities to promote our welfare. Parents for children. Husbands for wives. Government authorities. Bosses at work. And yes, pastors. There are many who have such a high estimation of themselves that they don't believe they need these authorities. They wonder who could possibly have more wisdom or be able to make better decisions than me. And even if they might submit to many of these authorities outwardly, simply because it's more convenient to do so, they might nevertheless inwardly struggle to accept the fact that God has placed these individuals above them. Or with regard to pastoral authority specifically, they don't even join a church at all. Again, because they see no need for any spiritual authority over them since they're so capable of taking care of themselves. All the spiritual leadership they'll ever need is already right there within them. Sixth, pride is manifested in prayerlessness. You know, it's one thing to think that you don't need other people, as we've been discussing. But how much more arrogant is it to think that you don't need God? Which is exactly the assumption we make whenever we neglect prayer. We're assuming that we're able to handle things on our own and that we don't need God's gracious help or empowerment or his working on our behalf. By contrast, humble Christians understand how desperately they need God every single moment and therefore make regular prayer the priority. It needs to be in their lives. Then a seventh manifestation is seeking to draw attention to ourselves. Now, maybe we do this by just shamelessly boasting about our accomplishments, but probably more often we're a little more clever than that. And we find ways to conveniently insert certain facts into conversations that we're having with others, like maybe our educational achievements or career-related achievements or maybe the impressive people with whom we associate. You know, I believe that's called name-dropping. Or maybe we, we try to draw attention to ourselves another way and we, uh, maybe we buy a fancy car or wear overpriced, overpriced clothing, again, with the motivation of Drawing attention to ourselves. Or, maybe we're more spiritual than that, and we frequently talk about how we avoid making those kinds of purchases so that, you know, we can give more money to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, for example, right? Pride is a very sneaky thing, right? Eighth, and uh, closely, closely related, is being overly concerned about what others think of us. Let me ask you this. How many 
of the decisions you make on a daily basis are based on what other people will think about you. Probably more than you might think. How much of your energy is spent striving to be highly regarded by others and to try, trying to gain their approval? You know, being a people pleaser might seem humble at first, but it's actually a symptom of pride because the focus is ultimately on us and our reputation and our status. Then a ninth manifestation of pride is selective association. Basically, we, uh, we prefer to associate with some people rather than others because they're highly regarded from a worldly perspective. And so we choose to have dinner with the big-name attorney, maybe, rather than the, the lowly waitress. Or maybe we invite the wealthy business owner over for a cookout instead of the call center attendant. And the reason we do this is because it strokes our ego whenever important people acknowledge us. Also, simply spending time with those people allows us to view ourselves as in that, being in that higher league rather than in some lower league. And we might do all this without even necessarily being very conscious that we're doing it, showing preference. But it's, nevertheless, a symptom of pride. Then finally, a tenth way pride is manifested is through a lack of gratitude. Maybe that lack of gratitude is so pronounced, it even overflows into complaining or grumbling about our circumstances. You know, our unspoken assumption is, I deserve better than this. That sense of entitlement is lurking in the shadows of our hearts whenever we complain. And even if we don't come right out and complain, we can still be functioning in that sense of entitlement, even if it's not verbalized. The telltale sign is always that lack of gratitude in our lives. So in light of these 10 things, uh, let me encourage you to confess your pride to God wherever you've discovered it lurking. Admit how deceived you've been about your own heart and ask both for God to forgive you and for his transformative grace to be at work within you so that your prideful regard for yourself can be replaced with a humble regard for God. And that actually brings us to an 11th manifestation of pride. Um, I know I said there were only 10, but there are actually 11. So just think of it like a bonus manifestation. Yet in all seriousness, this 11th manifestation is actually the most dangerous and deadly of them all. Pride is manifested in a refusal to cry out to Jesus for rescue from your sins. Just as people who think they're healthy uh, often aren't as inclined to go to a doctor, people who think they're spiritually okay aren't very inclined to look to Jesus for rescue. After all, why would they? They're already doing just fine on their own. Yet the problem, of course, is that they're not doing fine at all. 
Now, hopefully, if we've seen anything this morning, it's that pride is way more pervasive in our lives than we often assume. And the same can be said of sin in general. The fact is that we are more sinful than we can understand. Like, we just see the tip of the iceberg of our sin. And the problem goes right down to our very hearts, right? The outward sins we commit are merely symptoms of the disease that's infected our hearts, the disease of sin. Yet the good news of the gospel, dear friends, is that there is hope for sinners like you and me. God has sent us a Savior in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from our sin, including all the different manifestations of pride we've discussed this morning. And the reason he's able to rescue us from our pride is because he humbled himself in the most radical way imaginable. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 3 through 8, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And what's our model for that? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, in just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Christmas and uh, Christmas is a wonderful time, isn't it? Filled with cherished traditions and enjoyable gatherings and, yes, a lot of really good food. Praise God for that. And yet, let's not forget what Christmas is all about. It's about our Savior, who, though he was in the form of God, was willing to empty himself in the sense of temporarily laying aside his heavenly glory and actually taking the form of a servant, it says, and being born in the likeness of men. Think about that. Spurgeon writes, you and I can have no idea of how high an honor it is to be equal with God. How can we, therefore, measure the descent of Christ when our Highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which he came. The height from which he came is inconceivably above our loftiest thought. Do not, therefore, forget the glory that Jesus laid aside for a while. Remember that he is very God of very God, and that he dwelt in the highest heaven with his Father. But yet, though he was thus infinitely rich, for our sakes, he became infinitely poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And yet that's not all. 
As Paul goes on to tell us in verse 8, Jesus humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, in the words of Spurgeon, just as the height from which Jesus came is inconceivably above our loftiest thought, the depth to which he descended is immeasurably below any point we have ever reached. We can't even imagine the physical agony of the cross, let alone its shame and humiliation. Yet that's what Jesus endured for us. Notice that the text says he humbled himself in this way. Not that he was humbled. He humbled himself. He voluntarily chose to allow this this horrific incident to happen to us. He saw the wretched condition that we were in. And so he said to the Father, I'll go. I'll go to rescue them. And so he did. Jesus humbled himself not only by becoming a man, but by suffering and dying on the cross. The reason he did that was to pay the penalty for our sins. And that includes pride as well as every other sin we've ever committed. Jesus paid the debt that we owed. Through his humble self-emptying, Jesus made atonement for our prideful self-exaltation. As another author named Jaquel Ferris has observed... The God-man emptied himself of all he deserved to save us from all we deserve. He who was entitled to the highest honor forfeited it for our eternal good. Because of his humility, we can be forgiven of our pride. To understand that no matter how pervasive Pride has become in your life. There's forgiveness. There's rescue in Jesus. He died in your place and then victoriously resurrected from the dead and now invites you to renounce your pride and put your trust in him for rescue. That involves humbly recognizing that there's absolutely no way that you could ever rescue yourself. No matter how good of a person you try to be or what kinds of positive changes that you try to make in your life, you won't ever be able to earn God's favor. Instead, you have to humble yourself and come to Jesus with the empty hands of a beggar and receive what he offers as the free gift that it is. Because make no mistake, the day is coming when Jesus will return, not in lowliness and humility, but in power and majesty. And on that day, he'll triumph over all human pride. You see, just as in Genesis 11, 
God dispersed the people who were building the Tower of Babel and put an end to that project of prideful self-exaltation, the Bible says something similar is going to happen in the future, though on a much grander scale. You see, the name Babel in Genesis 11 is the same Hebrew word as the word Babylon. It's not that difficult to see the similarity of those two words, Babel and Babylon in English, but they're actually the same exact word in Hebrew. And as you may know, uh, Babylon is mentioned throughout the Bible, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation. And Babylon's always presented as a city set in rebellion against God. Whenever we see Babylon in the Bible, it's always hostile toward God and antagonistic toward God's people. And it all comes to a climax in Revelation, where Babylon represents an evil world system controlled by the Antichrist that carries on the legacy of the Tower of Babel through its prideful self-exaltation in defiance of God. And yet... As we see vividly displayed in Revelation 18, Jesus will triumph over Babylon in a final and decisive way. Babylon will be absolutely humiliated and put to open shame. As we read in Revelation 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And the kings of the earth will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So that will be the fate of Babylon. And of all of those, who pridefully exalt themselves in rebellion against God. And in the place of Babylon will be the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, as it's called in Revelation 21, where God's people will dwell with him and worship him for all eternity. Finding joy not in being exalted themselves, but in knowing and exalting God. So which city will you be a part of? The earthly city? Babel or Babylon that's swiftly destroyed? Or the heavenly city? New Jerusalem that's eternally blessed. You know, looking once again at Philippians 2... Paul's teaching about Jesus doesn't end with his humble obedience, but rather with his glorious exaltation and triumph. Paul writes in verses 9 through 11, Therefore, because of Christ's humble obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And friends, that's presented not only as something that should happen, but as something that will happen. One day, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So you could either do things the easy way or the hard way, I guess you could say. You could either humble yourself now or be humbled by Jesus in the future. Either way, you're going to bow before him and confess his lordship. The only question is whether you'll be doing that from heaven or hell.